I have chosen to stay in our study of the book of Hebrews for my Easter text. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our hearts, our souls, our minds, our repentance, our joy, and our faith. Father, exalt your Son through the word in this next 35 to 40 minutes. Lift him up so that you'll be glorified in our affections, in our hope, in our trust in him, in our joy. So help me as a pastor, as a teacher. Unfold this verse to the glory of Christ, our resurrected King. Amen and amen. The world to come. Okay, been here working through chapter 2 of Hebrews. This is what the writer is speaking about in the context here and throughout the whole book of Hebrews. So, let me give you the gist of this sermon up front. Here it is. The resurrection of Jesus demands that we look to the world which is to come. The world to come is banked on the historical, human, bodily resurrection of Jesus after his brutal suffering and death. He went before us, and that points us to the world come. And that's Christianity. And if that's not in someone's version of Christianity, they've missed the whole thing. Now last week we saw in, in this passage that the world to come, all of creation then, in the resurrection, will be subjected to the church, to all of Jesus' people with Him and through Him who preceded in resurrection as our forerunner. In other words, salvation is so great. That's His whole point. Do not neglect such a great salvation. He says, it is so great 
that it would be utterly foolish to neglect it. Jesus told a parable one time in Luke chapter 14 about God's great salvation and how people neglect it. He said it this way. A man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And then Jesus said, the master said to his servant, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is one of Jesus' pictures of what it will be like for those who neglect such a great salvation. And notice that those things they neglected for are good things. They're everyday life things. They're not in and of themselves evil things. A piece of property. New farm equipment. A wife. And for that, salvation is neglected and lost. In the, in the context of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, what we are not to neglect is called this great salvation, which then is defined as being saved for the world which is to come. That's verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So when he says, I'm talking about the world to come, he's clearly referring back to what he just said. The great Salvation. When the writer speaks of salvation, he means in this context here, not the beginning of salvation, but its consummation. In other words, 
The way he's using the word salvation or saved is not the way Paul uses it when he speaks to the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And yeah, he can wake up the next day and say, I have been saved. In this context, he's not using it that way. He's using it the way he goes on to use it in Hebrews 9, verse 28, when he writes, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will, still in the future, He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So here about the great salvation that he is preaching throughout the book of Hebrews, he means what heaven, he means the, 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 the new heavens and the new earth, he means the celestial city, he means, as he will say later, a better resurrection. He means, in our passage, verse 5, the world to come. And that's Christianity. That's the gospel of Jesus' substitutionary death and His bodily, historical resurrection from the dead with numerous eyewitnesses. This is Christianity. It's not something less than that. What would you think if you saw that a 19-year-old Christian kid wrote the following in his diary. Quote, Resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Resolved, when I feel pain, to think of the pains of martyrdom and hell. Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved, that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. What would you think? If, if that 19-year-old kid were raised in a present-day American evangelical home, I think his parents would be seeking out a Christian therapist in order to get his mind off such morbid subjects, or maybe even a psychiatrist to get him on Prozac or something. Well, that young 19-year-old kid was Jonathan Edwards, who became one of the, the main vehicles that God used in the first great awakening in America in the 1740s, and in my opinion, became the greatest theologian America ever produced. 
now. Contrast that with today. There are, there are many, many, many church leaders who are catering not to the gospel, not to the text of Scripture. Their main study is to study the felt needs of the modern sinner to know what to say, therefore, to them. In other words, Christianity is about Jesus giving to you your best life right now. You say. So sermon after sermon, the Jesus way to get rich, or the Jesus way to have a better family, or the Jesus way to have a better marriage, or the Jesus way to do your business, and this is what Jesus is all about. There's been a big shift away from the truth that God Himself is the gift of God's love. And that's why Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead to seal it. It's a shift away from Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the, the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. The very best gift that God can give is not a spouse or a child or piece of land or big bank account. The very best gift He could give and He does give in His saving love is Himself. That we gain Christ, as Paul cried out in Philippians 3. I count everything in comparison as, as loss because of the surpassing worth or value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, for His sake, I, Paul, have suffered the loss of everything. And I count them as trash in order that I may gain Christ. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel working in a, a broken, undone, imperfect soul. To have God's perfect, holy, just, judicial wrath turned away and have Him had changed our hearts to see the beauty of who He is because the Spirit comes within us. That is the gift of God's love to many sinners. Now, for clarity's sake at this point, 
not this world, but the world to come. That, that does not mean that in this world we have no experiences or tastes of that world to come. Because this very writer goes on to say in chapter 6, you have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and you've tasted the powers of the age to come. Just a taste, though. In other words, like the Apostle John throughout his writings in the New Testament where he emphasizes, we have eternal life now, presently. In other words, that future inheritance, which in its consummation and fullness remains future, in a sense is broken off into time and space in our mortal lives while we're still yet sinners by the person and indwelling of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a down payment. And that's the Christian life. And that's why the Old Testament born-again people, the saints, that's who they were, they were born again. David was born again, made alive before Christ ever came and did it. Because he was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's why his sins were put away. Because that cross was coming. And that's why the writer of Hebrews puts all of those saints up as our example as Christians to walk in faith. To trust in God. To follow in their steps. Because they were looking to the world which is to come, not this one. And they never received it in their lifetime. So if you would flip over just for a moment, we get a taste of it to Hebrews chapter 11. And he start with verse 13. He says, after listing whole bunches of Old Testament saints, and these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus or this way make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. You jump down to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting or temporal 
pleasures of sin. Why, Moses? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why, Moses? Because he was looking to the reward. All right, the point, simple. You cannot really understand or rightly live the Christian life if you do not maintain this futuristic aspect of the gospel. And we live in a time, we live in a place as Americans, the richest people in the history of the world. And you mix that in then with this strong movement and tendency over the last 50 years and they tried to shove it down my throat in seminary. With this, let's cater to the felt needs of darkened, spoiled American people. And that'll get them to want to come to our religious settings. Whether you call it the church growth movement or the seeker sensitive movement, it all boils down to they're saying, look, I care about this life mainly, please. So please preach to me practical stuff. But now don't get too heavy either, okay? And make sure it's filled in with nice stories. Keep it light. And give us some really good pop-sounding music. And I'll enjoy going to the building. But biblical Christianity doesn't offer this American version of the so-called gospel. Christianity is a life that has seen and wants to continually see the light of the glory of God in the person and the face of Jesus Christ. It's a life of persevering faith. Someone once said, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. The biblical, unadulterated gospel is infinitely better than the substitute gospel that is very prevalent in the American church today. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is the victory 
over everlasting death for us, and we're all dying. And chances are we will all die before Jesus returns. But the gospel is we have the victory even over our impending deaths on the last day when Jesus returns. Because it is through His human resurrection 2,000 years ago. This is the Christian life. It is driven by the vision of the world to come, which is grounded in the historical resurrection of Jesus from Nazareth. Just, just I want you to just sit back. Don't even turn. Just listen. Let the Apostle Paul preach to you an Easter message. Hear him. Church, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And that He was buried that He was raised on the third day in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Oh, church, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. See, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ, He has been raised from the dead. He is the, just the first. He's the first fruits of those who have died. See, Christ, the first fruits, then at His second coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Oh, I tell you a mystery, dear Christian. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up. In victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Oh, but thanks be to God who gives to us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ because He is risen indeed. Isn't that good? See, the Gospel is that Jesus the Messiah came, became human, truly human, and forever will be human. And He came and He bore the curse of the law, which every one of us broke. And God promised a curse for our sin. And He delivered. And if you're in Christ, He delivered it upon His Son. He bore God's holy wrath and made purification of our sins. And if right at this moment you believe He's yours, you know Him, it means it's because before you had a clue, before you in any way even cared, God reconciled Himself to you. He didn't do anything. He did it through the cross of His Son for you. If you're a believer, it's because you were made alive while you were dead. While you were God's enemy, he came and raised you. And you found yourself seeing such beauty in this message. He caused you to be born again. And so, you believe. And not only that, right now, all of us Sin. We love Jesus if you're in Christ and you sin. But we know right now that there is therefore no condemnation for anybody who is in Christ Jesus. Because through our faith in Christ, we have the assurance that when Christ returns, and then there is a judgment seat that we will all be at, we know it's already been determined in our favor. Even though we are yet sinful. And so in the midst of whatever time we have left on this earth in our suffering and pain and death or whatever may come around the corner, we can cling to the promise 
of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, when Paul quotes Isaiah saying, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him in the world to come. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what makes so many of you so happy. And this is why so many of us Christians are not indifferent to the perversion of the gospel in contemporary American evangelicalism. It's not because we have a negative spirit. It's because we're so positive toward the gospel of our salvation and toward Jesus, our Savior. That's why the perversions are grieving. Look, when the, the largest church numerically of people who attended, the largest church in America is led by a quote-unquote pastor who matter-of-factly proclaimed on 60 Minutes that I don't have the gift of teaching people what biblical texts mean. Many of us could have said, no, duh, which means his message is not the Bible. That's grieving, especially when you listen to what he does say, and it is not the gospel. Yes, Jesus' name is mentioned. Yes, he says the term born again at the end of every TV broadcast. But you can boil it all down to a book he published over a decade ago, which was a compilation of many talks he gave to his congregation, and it was appropriately titled, Your Best Life Now. not the world to come. And we should weep because that was a massive bestseller. I remember being at Costco, and I don't know what they did with the other books, but they had to like move them somewhere because this thing was taking up table after table. Your best life now is not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Rather, I think in the world to come, the testimonies will go on and on about how suffering and setbacks and the un-American dream was the grace-filled means that my Savior used to keep my eyes on the heavenly country. You see, it is, it is harder to see with clarity Something that's still there in the future when you put all your marbles and live for all you can get right now in the present. You might find yourself saying, sorry, Jesus. Thanks for the offer 
of the banquet, but please excuse me because I just bought a new ox. I just got a new car. I'm sorry, I'm, I got to work double because I have to have that bigger house or the extra cabin. Jesus, I'm sorry. I just got married. Sorry, Jesus, but now things have changed because we've had our first baby. So I can't be bothered by the clarity of the gospel and the hope of the world to come right now. The banquet. That banquet in the world to come is what Easter is all about. Now, what I'm going to do then, right now, I'm going to close by just letting us hear where we've been the last three weeks in Hebrews chapter 2. Now, I will. You're going to hear a lot of my paraphrase through it, okay? I'm teaching through this passage. Just hear Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, Christians... We, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? See, it was first declared by Jesus Himself when He predicted His own suffering and death and resurrection from the dead. And then it was attested and, and confirmed to us by the eyewitnesses of His resurrection. The, those who heard Him and talked with Him as they ate and drank with Jesus after He rose from the dead. And while they did that with us, God bore witness to us by signs and wonders and various miracles through the hands of the apostles. See, Concerning this great salvation, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, but, but it was to mankind, to us who believe that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. As David said, you have crowned mankind with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. But at present, on this Easter Sunday, we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. But we do see Jesus who became human and is now crowned with glory and honor after His death because He has risen and ascended. This is the great salvation concerning the world to come. O oh, church, He is our only Savior.
He is our love. Jesus is the glory of God to us. He is our risen King. Because He has risen indeed. Let us stand. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is Father, we thank you for such a Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you. As we hear you pray, Father, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass. But you do all things for the glory of the Holy Trinity. And you drank the cup of our wrath that we deserved without mercy so that we are those who drink the cup of mercy without wrath. We thank you.